The universe seems unbelievably vast, a sky filled with countless stars and worlds. Well, maybe not so countless, as there's a whole field devoted to crunching the numbers associated with an ever-expanding universe. Astrostatistics is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is panelist John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department. Richard Campbell is away today. We have two guests joining us today to talk about astrostats. Jesse Chizeski Kay is an assistant professor in the Department of Statistics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her research focuses on methodological development for certain kinds of complicated data sets. Statistical challenges in astronomy, astrophysics, and cosmology are a primary focus of her work. Chad Schaefer is a professor in the Department of Statistics and Data Science at Carnegie Mellon University. Schaefer's work on statistical challenges that arise in astronomy with a particular focus on the handling of complex estimation problems. He's currently involved with a legacy survey of space and time to be conducted at the under construction Verisi Rubin Observatory, co-chairing its informatics and statistics science collaboration since 2015. Jesse and Chad, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you. So John's dad listens to the show, and I wonder if you could take a moment, if you had to describe to John's dad what astrostatistics is, how would you explain it to him? Well, typically what I, uh, what I tell people is that modern astronomical uh, experiments, you know, uh, observatories, are gathering massive amounts of information on the observable universe. We look at something like the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. It has observed um, almost half a billion galaxies and stars in the universe and measuring their properties. So there is a lot of work needed in order to process and analyze these data to actually learn something uh, about the universe scientifically. Uh, There was a time when Astronomy was about studying individual objects out there in the universe. And there is still some of that work being done. But by and large today, uh, the field of astronomy is focused on studying large samples of uh, objects in the universe and studying their properties and learning what we can about the universe from them. So, so Jesse, would you, uh, would, would you expand on that or, or, or do you have a, any kind of different take on that? Yeah, so how I often describe astrostatistics is just simply um, using statistical methodology for problems in astronomy, cosmology, and astrophysics. But yeah, so so Chad, wonderful, more far more detailed. I would say that there, um, so some of the problems where we still study individual objects are th- are things like the detection of exoplanets, where we might be observing, for example, a single star and trying to decide if a, a planet is orbiting. Um, just for example. But yeah, there's um, there's definitely a focus on massive amounts of data that um, need to be processed, analyzed, summarized. Another aspect of working in astrostatistics is that um, in the field of astronomy, there's many different types of data as well. So you'll have our, our usual kind of point cloud data, uh, maybe like the locations of galaxies in the universe, but also there are images, um, there are functions and, and things of that nature. So um, there's a nice variety and um, plenty of room for statisticians to contribute. Can I ask just a quick follow-up for both of you? I'm just, could, could you describe just a que- one question that you've worked on? Doesn't have to, you know, and then what, a little bit about the kind of data that's collected to, to address that question. Well, I, I think 
one of the most fundamental type of question we address are the estimation of so-called cosmological parameters. And people are often uh, surprised that a lot of the questions about the universe have been boiled down to the estimation of a handful of real value parameters. For instance, the Hubble constant, what's the current rate of expansion of the universe? So you can use observations of the so-called cosmic microwave background radiation, for example, to constrain those parameters. It sort of sets up a classic uh, statistics problem from a you know, statistical inference standpoint, but the interesting aspects come in in the complexity of the relationship between those parameters you want to estimate and what you actually get to observe. You know, the, the mapping, if you will, that relates those parameters to what you get to observe is based on a lot of uh, uh, cosmological theory, very complex. Working with those models presents a lot of statistical challenges. So that's that was actually the sort of problem that got me started analyzing co um, cosmic background radiation data for the purposes of parameter estimation. So Jesse, how about you? Yeah, one of my first astrostatistics projects was um, was really just trying to get a map of the distant universe. And so, so why, why is that hard? Well, um, you know, how, how do we observe anything we, we, uh, in the universe? We, um, we have to measure something like the, the light output, or we have to be able to see the objects or somehow detect them. But the further the objects um, are away from us, the harder they are to see. And so we, um, at some point, we, we stop seeing stars. At some point, we stop seeing galaxies, or, or we only see very, very bright galaxies, for example. But um, astronomers, as it turns out, are very clever, and they have these different ways of, um, of observing different parts of the universe. And so they have this type of data um, that's known as the Lyman Alpha Forest. And so what, what happens with the Lyman Alpha Forest? So what, what is that? Well, um, so the light output from very distant galaxies, uh, actually, I shouldn't say galaxies, I should say quasars, um, Quasars are some of the most um, luminous objects in, in the universe. And so we can see them very far away. And the light that, um, that the quasar lets off travels then through the universe. And it turns out as it travels through the intergalactic medium, so like the, the gas and the stuff between us and the quasar, um, that stuff leaves an imprint on the light that we can measure from the quasar. And so from that light, which is actually what, what we observe would be a spectrum. So you can just imagine it's a, a function wavelength on the horizontal axis and something like the brightness on the vertical axis. And so we have these functions and we are able to kind of pull certain properties from that function that can tell us something about the distribution of matter along the line of sight to the quasar. And so you get this kind of interesting collection of, um, of functions that help us to understand regions of the very distant universe. And, um, and so from that information, I've worked on trying to just produce a, a map then, right? It, just like how if you had a, a collection of, of points um, on the earth and you wanted to produce a map of some aspect, like the, let's say the temperature of the earth and you have the temperature at different locations. And, um, and so in this case, we have some something that's like the amount of matter at, at certain points in kind of a, a 3D region of the universe. And, um, and then we just created a, a map of that. 
And so we can uh, we can get then a picture of what the distant universe looks like. It ends up being something analogous to the distribution of neutral hydrogen in that region. Something that comes up a lot, you know, when I'm I so I'm a I'm a nerd and grew up like semi obsessed with with uh, science and astronomy stuff. And something that comes up a lot when I read is this idea of noise um, and there being noise and data. And I know it's something that's used in statistics broadly, but I wonder. You know, what when we're talking about astro statistics and the, and the kinds of things that you are measuring, um, how do you how do you conceptualize noise in this situation? And how do you how do you control for it when it seems like there's so much it's still kind of unknowable about things that you need to measure in some ways? Yeah, no, noise in astronomy data can be very challenging because sometimes you, you don't know, is it is it just this kind of random fluctuations? Is it due to the instrument? Is it due to these physical phenomena that we just don't know enough about um, and it ends up being correlated with, with perhaps um, time? And so, um, so I'd say, yeah, de dealing with noise can be, um, can be quite challenging. Um, a number of astronomers, if you ask them, de depending on um, what field in astronomy, you know, one astronomer's noise is another astronomer's signal. And so, uh, so there. Uh, just as a brief example, um, so so I I mentioned this already, but I work with um, exoplanets, and exoplanets are planets orbiting stars outside our solar system. And so, when you want to detect exoplanets, there are a number of different methods for doing it. But one aspect of exoplanets is that they're orbiting a star, and a, a star ha um, is not just a, a solid ball. It's it's plasma. There's activity. There's lots going on. And so when you're trying to detect an exoplanet, the star's activity is actually more of a, a noise and a hindrance. But for those who study stars, that's what they're interested in. And so they want to understand those properties. So yeah, de depending on what one is working on, it's uh, how you understand or conceptualize noise. Just it depends on, um, I guess, a lot of different things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it, in terms of uh, yeah, statistical problems, People often ask me, you know, what are the common statistical problems within astrostatistics? And really, the methods that are used run the gamut of all, uh, all sorts of things. But the handling of what we would refer to as measurement error within the field of astronomy is it's a big challenge. And Jesse was just referring to that. And this is one dimension in which I feel that astrostatistics really pushes the boundaries of what statistical methods can handle. You know, we think about all the measurements that are taken, they tend to have error bars attached to them. We assume that they're reliably measured, although we should take into consideration they, they can definitely be off, but they have complex distributions. They're typically heteroscedastic. You know, how is that incorporated into the downstream uh, analyses, that is another thing that, you know, people working in astrostatistics are are constantly taking into, into consideration. Yeah, I, I, as I was reading some of the, the background papers, I mean, some of the, some really nice general papers in some places like Significance and Chance, where, where these are, are discussed, I, I found myself thinking more about detection methods and the idea of that there's almost this race between the, uh, increasing precision and in measurement 
and then what does that mean for what you have to do in terms of the analysis? And that that sounds really tricky. It seems like it's it, I mean it's, maybe it's a, sort of job security for for working in astrostatistics because the the, the <laughs> measurement instruments continue to evolve and 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 maybe sort of the, the, the even the strategies and what you measure seems to evolve. So so right. How does this kind of interplay between how well you can measure and then what you do with those measurements? You know, one thing I often uh, repeat probably too often is that we are shifting from variance dominated challenges in astronomy into bias dominated ones. And what I mean by that is when you have a small sample, you're mostly concerned with variability in the resulting estimates. But when you, as you get larger samples, higher precision, then you start to run up against uh, limitations of you know, misspecified models, the, the biases that result from that. And that, that's the generation of problems that we are, we are facing now. And what a survey such as LSST will give us is how do we do uh, inference? How do we get the, the most out of these data in cases where the, the, the sample sizes are so large that any model that you assume can be shown to be a poor fit to the data. Oh, I, you know, so so I, you you mentioned this large scale structure problem. Was that what you were referring to? The L, was that the or when you well, when you said like LSS or D, I, I miss. Yes, I, I should be more careful. It's LSST stands for the Legacy Survey of Space and Time. Oh, sorry. There is another notion of so called large scale structure, which is a field that is, is studying, as the name implies, the, uh, the structure of the universe. But the Legacy Survey of Space and Time is a, is a, um, a survey that's going to be conducted on a telescope that's currently under construction in Chile. It's going to completely revolutionize our understanding of the universe. Why? Well, it's, again, just orders of magnitude, more data. Okay. Um, it'll observe 20 billion galaxies. That's the projections. Wow. How do you crunch any of the data from that? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that, that's a big question. Um, you know, obviously, to a certain extent, we're looking uh, ten years into the future. The computing power that will be available then is, you know, difficult to conceive of at this time. And we, we assume that, you know, we will be able to do large scale analyses of these data. But you know, that's a lot of what. Uh, uh, the people working in astrostatistics and the other scientists in these areas are focused on is answering those questions, how to do the analyses in a proper way to take these uh, large data sets into consideration and not discard useful information in the process, right? So those are uh, definitely the big challenges uh, in the field these days. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking about astrostatistics with Jesse Chizeski K and Chad Schaefer. Jesse, you've mentioned exoplanets a couple of times, so I'm wondering if you could just describe what an exoplanet is, and and I think in your some of your answers you might have kind of danced around how you find them, but maybe kind of spell out like how do you find them? Yeah, absolutely. So so an exoplanet is a planet that orbits a star that that's not our sun. So outside our solar system, the, um, the first exoplanet that was um, discovered orbiting a sun-like star was in 1995, uh, 51 Pegasi B. 
And that discovery actually led to the Nobel Prize in Physics for the discoverers in, in 2019. So in terms of astronomy timelines, it's a relatively young field, um, exoplanet astronomy. And there are different ways of detecting exoplanets. Um, two of the more popular ways, in more popular in the sense that they've discovered more exoplanets, is what's called the radial velocity method and the transit method. So I'll, I'll describe both because I, I think they're they're easy enough to describe. Hopefully it will make sense. But the discovery of 51 Pegasi b, so the, the first planet orbiting a sun-like star, um, used the radial velocity method. And so what that method does is it, um, it looks for a wobble in the star. So if there is an object that's orbiting a star, it's, um, it can shift the star kind of off its center of mass. Um, the, the more mass of the object, the more that star will wobble. Um, and so what astronomers do is they measure on as different nights, let's say in the ideal situation, a, a star would be observed every night for years. That's not feasible. It might just be a few times a month um, for several months a year. But, um, but with each observation, they, um, they get a spectrum from the star and that gives the distribution of light. So again, you have wavelength on the horizontal axis and something like brightness on the vertical axis. And from that spectrum, there are ways of observing a redshift, blue shift. And I, I can go into those details, but that might be too much information without pictures. So to say from that spectrum, we can observe, we, we can measure if it's moving. And, and then from that, from that motion, uh, how much it's shifting left and right, we get an estimate of the radial velocity of that star for the night. And then if you plot the radial velocity across time, um, you look for a particular pattern in it. So if, if a planet, for example, is orbiting the star, you'd see something um, kind of like a, a sinusoid signal in the radial velocity um, data. And, um, and so you can fit a model to it and, um, and try, to, try to see if there's a, a planet present. But, but ultimately it comes down to um, trying to measure a systematic wobble in the star that, um, that we'd expect if there is an object orbiting. And so, um, so that's one, one approach. And then the transit method, if, um, if you've ever heard of um, NASA's Kepler telescope, so um, Kepler uses the, um, the transit method. And so that's where instead of looking at the distribution of light of, of a star, it monitors kind of the, the total light output of the star um, across time. And so it's not as detailed of information from each star, but because of that, you can get, it turns out you can get a lot more measurements. And so Kepler was monitoring a, a field within the Milky Way for a number of years. And, um, and the, what you look for then is the brightness of the star having these little dips in it. And the dips would indicate that something has transited or crossed, um, crossed in front of the star um, in the line of the, the telescope. And so if a planet is orbiting a star, you'd see, um, it'd block out potentially just a little bit of the light. And, um, and so pretending that the light output of the star was just a flat line, you'd see like a little dip and what you'd expect to see then, if it if there is a planet, is you'd expect to see that dip occur periodically, like with it with um, a particular period. And so, if you see that same dip, let's say three times, kind of um, within the the same um, time distance apart, then that could suggest that there's actually an, an object orbiting. It could be a planet, and from the shape of that dip, um, you can measure some properties of the exoplanet as well.
And so, um, so those, so the transit method and the radial velocity method have been very successful at detecting exoplanets. At this point, I, I believe there have been over 4,000 confirmed exoplanets discovered. And so many of them, most of them are from the transit method. And then the second most would be um, the radial velocity method. You know, one, one thing that, that's, that's really striking to me when, when, you know, I, I look at this, this work, you know, you, you've, you're, there's this vastness of scale with the data and with the objects that you're describing. And, you know, one of the things when, when people talk about quantitative literacy, there's often the idea of statistical literacy being part of it, understanding functional relationships being part of it, and understand, understanding magnitudes. How do you communicate this idea of just the vastness of information that's being collected or just the size of the, the, the systems that you're studying? You know, you, you know, I, you know Chad, you, I think half a billion just tripped off your tongue <laughs> as, as you were describing as, as you were describing this. But, you know, how do you talk about this in ways to try to bring people along and, and, and help gain intuition and insight? It's difficult. I. Uh, one thing I would stress is that, you know, I, I like to think of the, the common, uh, this is an overall generalization, but common problems in astrostatistics often go through a sequence of, of stages. And one of the early stages is taking these massive collections of data. You know, maybe you have a catalog of galaxies that has tens of thousands or maybe hundreds, uh, hundreds of thousands of, uh, of galaxies in it, and then coming up with some useful summary of, of its properties. Something I might refer to as a, a, a canonical parameter, a natural uh, parameterization of, of, of this uh, population, and a natural summary. Its estimate would be a natural summary statistic is what I'm trying to say. So... If I'm discussing these problems, you know, with statisticians, that's often how I try to um, describe the problems. We start with these massive data sets, and they are undoubtedly uh, very large. But ultimately, if we can think about the problem, and you know, from a scientific standpoint and also a statistical standpoint, you can come up with a, a useful summary statistic which serves as a as an intermediate point prior to the the you know ultimate uh, uh, estimation of these cosmological parameters for instance so yeah thinking about the the, the, the massive amount of data it, it can be overwhelming and very difficult to uh, think about how you would actually do the analyses but when you take it in steps when you think about it in stages i i think that that helps with the intuition I, just as a i have a, a question about kind of the role of simulation and and measurement here i mean i it seems like there there are competing there are competing uh ideas about what how the universe inner is is built and how it works you know and this is so i'm gonna I'm, I'm kind of skating on the thinnest ice that i can find right now so so you know just as a so i yeah you know i'm gonna just just bring out my all of my dirty ignorant laundry here to, to share. welcome welcome john <laughs> <laughs> so so if you have these different ideas or you're, you're you're interacting with colleagues that say well it could be this it could be this and you know then you may end up simulating some of these systems based on some of the assumptions about the structure they have but then you may be collecting data 
And I'm just wondering if there's, you know, how do you deal with both kind of the idea of simulation of systems as well as some of the observed characteristics of systems? And how does one inform the other? First, simulations can play a very important role in, in astronomy and, um, and in, in astrostatistics. The issue is that um, to get simulations that are realistic enough to, to really match or, or even um, come close to what might be going on in our actual universe is, is very challenging. Because if you, want, if you want a lot of details, kind of imagine the simulation cube has to be small. But if the simulation cube's small, you're not really getting the kind of the big picture of what's going on in the universe. So kind of um, these big cosmological simulations often will, I guess, typically will leave out um, baryonic matter, which would be like our, our usual matter, like galaxies, stars, the, the stuff we're made of, and just use um, dark matter. And um, but but when you are interested in things like ga like galaxy formation and that sort of thing, you um, you have to of course build that build that in build in the baryonic physics, but then the simulations end up being smaller, and, and so simulations are important because they can give us a way of kind of checking some aspects of what we're exploring, but um, but they're definitely not a replacement for working with with real data, but but then the other problem is with our real data we we have one universe that we can observe. And so it's so if we try to do you know any sort of let's say um, like l large sample theory we we don't have the repetitions that that we typically rely on well I guess you can cut up the universe and look at different parts there are things you can do of course to to mimic that but but if you're interested in things like the large scale structure often using cosmological simulations to see what happens if we, if we tweak some cosmological parameters how does that change what the large scale structure look looks like. So if you change some property of dark matter, um, what, what, what does the resulting cosmic web look like at our, our present time? And so using simulations can help us to say, well, what if the universe kind of had some, some different underlying cosmological model? What happens? But, but then we end up leaving out some important physics that, that could completely change the answers if, if we had it in. Yeah, and just building on that, I, I completely agree with what Jesse is saying. But as I was saying earlier, as we get more and more data, the simple models that people may have relied upon start to uh, show their flaws, right? If with enough data, you can show that maybe these normal approximations that you were using, they are no longer a, a good fit. So in, on smaller scale problems, maybe than the ones that Jesse was referring to, you know, simulation models can be a very useful uh, way of getting around that issue. So instead of having a classic, you know, normal distribution or assuming a certain parametric distribution for your data, the things we typically do in statistics or in a stat 101 course, we could use a simulation model instead. So you could think about as you vary the input parameters to the simulation model, and then you can generate data sets and compare that with what you have actually observed. So these sorts of techniques, um, you know, including things that Jesse and I have, have worked on together, are becoming more commonly utilized in 
in astrostatistics and in other fields. And again, it's, it's just for the reasons that I was describing that with the amount of data that we have these days and the sorts of questions that people are asking of the data, making simple or uh, simplified assumptions is no longer going to be adequate. So simulation models can be a, a, a useful tool in that, in that way. Chad, you mentioned this big observatory that is being built, which and sort of suggests the potential for what could come from that. And I wonder for both you and Jesse, as we're wrapping up our conversation, what are the things that you sort of see on the horizon in this particular field that you think are that are exciting you or or, or getting you jazzed about the work that you do? Well, I, certainly. LSST, this uh, survey that's going to be conducted, as I said earlier, it's going to completely revolutionize um, our understanding of the universe. I mentioned the, the growth in the number of galaxies that will be observed. Another crucial aspect of this, of this uh, experiment is that it's going to measure things over time to an extent that has not been done before. So we're, we're actually going to be able to track individual objects track how the sky is changing. It's even going to be used to track the movement of asteroids uh, near to Earth. So the time dimension that this is going to give to us is going to be tremendous, a, a tremendous source of additional scientific information. So I, I'm involved with this, this project, so I, I tend to focus on it, but I do believe that in 10 years' time, uh, this is going to have led to a huge number of additional discoveries regarding the universe. And that's certainly something that I'm excited about and very much looking forward to taking part in those analyses. So one of my areas that I've been focusing on recently is, um, is detecting low-mass exoplanets and it's um, so when I started working on this, gosh, maybe five years ago, from a number of discussions with with astronomers, I thought this was going to be so it's using the radial velocity method, I should also say that. So trying to basically trying to discover Earth analogs. And the way it was described, I thought this was going to be such an easy problem, because <laughs> one, one of the issues, yeah, I know, right? Famous last words. <laughs> but um, the because the way it was described, the issue with uncovering low mass exoplanets, so um, just the smaller exoplanets, is that um, they leave a very small signal. And when you when you get down to the, the signal size that an Earth analog would have um, induced for the kind of the, the radial velocity data that you'd get from an Earth analog orbiting a sun-like star, and that that scale gets down to the scale of um, of a lot of activity on the the surface of a star. So oh. things like sunspots we, we may have heard of, um, there are star spots on other on other stars, and it turns out those sorts of um, that sort of activity can leave imprints that that can actually look like an exoplanet. So the signal can um, can mimic a signal from a planet. But but it's different. There are reasons why they're different. And and so ultimately, from initial discussions, I was like, oh, this is just a simple signal separation <laughs> problem. We have all these things in statistics that could be applied. But uh, but it's just not the case. Like it is just it is a very challenging problem because um, the just 
the amount of information within the stellar spectrum, it's it's not completely clear yet how to use that in order to um, to kind of uh, discriminate whether it's a planet or or activity. And so, you know, it's there, there's one issue with the activity can hide the signal of a planet, and then um, which is bad, but you know, we just don't detect it. That that's a problem, but. I don't think it's as, as problematic as saying there is a planet when it's actually just a star spot. And so there are a number of, of groups around the world who have been focusing on on this um, on this statistical challenge. Um, most of them are astronomers. There are definitely statisticians involved as well. But it's just it's a, a really it's it's a really fun problem because it's just not it's not clear how to solve it. And so um, so. People are throwing all these different techniques at, at this problem and trying it out and seeing um, seeing what's effective and what's not. And but it, it's important because um, trying to find this population of exoplanets that are Earth analogs has been um, has been just a general focus or goal within exoplanet astronomy because we found, uh, like I said, about uh, over four thousand exoplanets. Many of them are going to be the you know the more massive um, sized planets. But but trying to find um, kind of a um, something that looks potentially looks like Earth um, is um, there. Some there've been like some discoveries that kind of are described or marketed as Earth analogs, but they're just they just not, we're not quite there yet, I guess. And so I just think it's a um, it's an interesting problem from the astronomy standpoint, but also statistically, there's a lot that that can be done to. To contribute. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Jesse and Chad, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. It was great. Thank you. No, thanks. You, you, you're a great guest. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.